Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Uh, first, I want to say that uh, John was pretty tired from leading the day long downstairs, down, uh, down below, so he took the night off. <coughs> so here we are. <laughs> Uh, just want to get a sense before uh, we start doing the questions. How many people have a question in their minds? Just so, I don't know. Okay. Okay. So, who wants to go first? <coughs> Skillful ways of being with the doubting mind. Uh, well, the the first strategy in dealing with any of the hindrances is to be mindful of it. Now, what is what does that mean <coughs> when you've got a difficult energy or a strong emotion? There are generally uh, three things that are happening that I've seen when I've taken a look at when there's a strong emotion. There's a story. I'm not good enough. This is weird. It'll never be okay, etc., etc. There's a mood in the mind. Might be, say, with doubt, heaviness or a fog or dark or just... um, just a, a general mental atmosphere, and there's physical sensations in the body as well. Might be a clutching in, in the belly, or heaviness in the heart, or however it manifests. And so the first strategy is to move from the story, which is like the key movement, if you can remember. And a good place to get grounded in is feeling it in the body. And it's not just letting it be here. I mean, that that actually is a big movement where you give permission for it to be here instead of hoping that it will go. Because when you want it to go, all you do is lock it in. But allowing for it to be here because here's a chance for you to become familiar with it in another way than we're used to, which is getting lost and confused and babbling. And then if you can go one step more, there's really some magic. And that is bringing a real curiosity to explore and investigate the nature of this feeling. How the energy manifests in your body is a very good place to start. And when I when I say explore, I don't mean try to figure anything out, but just become familiar with the terrain, with the landscape, say, of doubt. Um, the, the real power in that is, besides bringing investigation, so you're learning something about it, is it's impossible to be fueling it with aversion while you're saying, let's take a good look at you. So, exploring the sensations, just the energy of doubt, and feeling it, something becomes revealed pretty soon, and that is, it's not one solid experience. There's many, many sensations that are happening. And as you give space for it to be here, it will do what it, what it does, but sooner or later it will pass. The, the, the key thing to realize is you can't be looking in order for it to pass. You can't trick it. 
it knows. You know, if you're trying to get rid of it, oh, I'll just look at it so it'll go away. It worked the last time. No, it really means allowing for it to be exactly how it is, feeling it in the body, feeling if you can, uh, if you can remember, just feeling the whole mental atmosphere. So it's getting to know doubt well. And it's not just your doubt, the way I look at it, like the Buddha said in this fathom-long body, the whole of the Dharma is revealed. This is your laboratory to explore the human condition of doubt. So if you can have that attitude, then you're not taking it quite so personally, which makes all the difference in the world. When it's really strong, it's hard to stay with any emotion or even physical sensation that's very intense and strong for a long time unless you've got very bright energy. So I find it helpful to just take it for a manageable chunk of time Okay, for the next minute, let me really feel this. And somehow giving yourself that, that space, that little contract, really allows for you to be open to it in a way that's different than hoping it'll go. Then at the end of that minute or two minutes or whatever, you might find you're still interested or it's changed into something else. Or you might just come back to feeling yourself sitting here breathing or opening up to sounds. You do that a few times before trying anything else because it's quite amazing. The very thing that we're afraid to touch can be really interesting and revealing and you see that you're, it's not as unbearable as, as you thought. And also you see that the awareness, say, of doubt, that which is aware of doubt is not doubting the awareness can hold anything. So it gives you a little bit of confidence. Oh yes, I can really be with this. So that's, that's the first strategy if you're able to be mindful. If the mindfulness isn't strong enough or you find yourself getting caught and swept away, the antidote to doubt is faith. So where you can find your faith you might find it many different ways. Uh, you weren't here when I, I, I gave a talk earlier in the retreat and touched on faith a bit. Um, it's a very uh, beautiful quality, beautiful factor. Where do you find your faith? You might find it in some somebody who inspires you, maybe the Buddha or Jesus or the Dalai Lama or some, some teacher, you might think of somebody who, by their example, maybe somebody you know personally who's got a lot of courage and, and has, has worked with their own doubts, or maybe somebody who believes in you, even when you don't believe in yourself, and just reflecting on them and on that quality that Yes, there, there's something courageous that they, that they see in you, that, they're, that they have faith in you. So that's, a, that's another way to work with it. If you find yourself really still in the morass, you might just um, turn your attention elsewhere. Just change the energy. This is uh, one of the Buddha's... Uh, the Buddha has a, a discourse on different ways of dealing with distracting thoughts when, when you're really in the grips of them, besides mindfulness. And one of them he calls forgetfulness and inattention. Isn't that great? The Buddha telling you not to pay attention. Right? And what that is, is you, just, you, you turn your attention away from whatever this intense knot or problem is to something else like listening to sounds or if you're not in the meditation hall, just relaxing a bit, taking a break, going for a walk if it's not raining out or you know, having a cup of tea. You know. For me, one of my mottos is when all else fails, take a shower. Yeah. <laughs> 
just something to change the energy a little bit. And you, you doing yoga, or just being in your body is a, is a very good way to kind of move out of you know, the circles in your mind. And as you do that, one thing, as you do it over and over, whatever the, the difficulty is, something that starts to sink in is it doesn't last. It's impermanent. And if you can remember why you're in the middle of it, I will not be here for the rest of my life. It can be a relief. Because sometimes we forget that. Uh-oh, I am stuck for good you know, or for bad for the rest of my life here. Just remembering this will pass. So while it's here, what can I learn from it? How can I relate to this in a, in a, do, in a new way? And that can give you a little bit of faith too. The difference between forgetfulness and inattention and aversion. Uh, because in aversion, there's a, a contraction that's reacting to, say you have doubt, okay? And then you, ha- you get really frustrated that there's doubt. And you, you want to get rid of this doubt. When it's wanting to get rid of, aversion is a mo- is a, a contraction that is um, that is lost in a battle, or that is that is moving in a battle. This is letting go of the battle and just turning your attention elsewhere, so there's not that contraction and there's just a uh, a, a connection with something else. Do you, you see the difference? In reading the suttas, there's something that in sort of the meditation instructions, the Buddha says something like the bhikkhu, you know, finds a quiet place, sits and contemplates the body and the body, etc., etc., both internally and externally. Mm-hmm. At least that's what it says in the translation I have. And I've never understood what the externally part means. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I... I you know, I've I've read different explanations or translations. You know, the body in the body, internally and externally. I don't really know. Although the the one thing that occurs to me, as far as on the physical level, there are sensations within, and there's also hearing and seeing. You know, that are an an external, an external source, at least of the sense impingement. Although the consciousness is inside, but um, I don't, I don't really know exactly what, what that means. It's not actually just as she was saying. There's no little person inside there directing the action. Listening to her talk, I was actually sort of contemplating her as, you know, just um, a process. And I wonder if that's, in a way, if that just getting too intellectual, or if that's a useful way to look at things. Seeing her as a process yeah, that's I going on. Yeah, I think. Oh, sure. I, I, uh, seeing, I think it's, uh, it's skillful to see everything as a process at times. You don't want to be going through life you know, just seeing mind-body processes uh, and you know, not relating to a person in there. But there's a, there's a value to just seeing, seeing things like that. It's all process. It's all just life playing with itself is one way uh, I, I have of, of putting it. Um, sure, that, that's, that's skillful. Is it for you? No, I'm not sure. You might just try that. Well, you 
know, instead of, well, he can do it right now with me, you know. <laughs> I don't have to take blame for anything I say that way. <laughs> it's just, it is. That's what it is. This I guess what I was trying to ask was, it occurred to me, was, is that what that instruction is that I put the Buddha saying? That I, I don't know. I don't know. But why not take it that way? Yeah. Um, I've been working with the seven factors of my life mm-hmm. and I meditate. And I seem to be alright with most of them. But I can't seem to get a handle on equanimity. And I'm not sure how it differentiates from tranquility. Mm-hmm. Tranquility, it seems for me, is to really just start relaxing and be peaceful. But equanimity just doesn't arise. You know, maybe you can elaborate on what goes on in that uh-huh. state. Uh-huh. How do you feel about equanimity not arising? Um, I desire. That's not equanimity. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was wondering if you'd say it's okay, and I'd say that's equanimity. Um. It's hard to get a handle on equanimity, too, as you say, uh, because it's the non-reaction to things. Uh, each of those those other those uh, stilling factors in the factors of enlightenment, uh, the way I relate to them, they're a different quality or a different aspect of stillness. Like calm is a is a kind of settled stillness. When everything just settles, it's very peaceful this way. Concentration is like a focused kind of a stillness, a still point. And equanimity, to me, is like a spacious stillness. And what it is, is the movement, there is not that movement of mind. There can be equanimity without calm. You can be seeing a lot of different you know, experiences, say, in your body, or even uh, feelings that are coming up, and they can be held in, in equanimity, that, so that there can be that distinction. There can be calm without equanimity, too. It's, it's more... You know, when you're kind of drifting off. Well, let me just think. Usually with equanimity, there's a presence that's not moving, not just a, a spacing out. So, and you can be calm and be kind of spacing out. But they often go together. So is the, there's that equanimity is the mind that doesn't move towards or away from things. It's just able to hold it all. You get a difference between the settled kind of stillness and a spacious stillness. I asked the other morning about spaciousness. So, just to mention. And, uh, I, what and, and, so, I'm still, I'm still trying to, what is spaciousness? Are there times that you feel spacious? Um, not, um, not really. Are there times when something happens that might disturb you in another situation, but say you're feeling balanced enough or centered enough that it, it doesn't ruffle you. You ever think of times like that? Well, that that's kind of pointing towards that, where you're not moved or disturbed. Or something that's very entrancing, maybe in, in one situation, you just find that it doesn't grab you. Um, that's 
that's a mind that's not moving towards towards or away from. Sometimes it, what a really wonderful practice uh, that I've, I've found helpful, when you're feeling quite settled and present, you might take a period of time and jo- just notice the movement of mind towards or away from anything. It's very, very subtle. Sometimes it's just, hmm, oh, this feels really good. I like it. Or, oh, I think this is okay. Uh, It's not quite as... You just moved away from. And the thing is that even if you're aware of that, in the moment that you're aware of the movement, you're not lost in it. So so that you're you're back to a space, to a spaciousness around it because the awareness is not is not caught up in in that thing. So you might just take a little period of time and explore that, that movement of mind towards or away from things and see what happens. Um, I still find it difficult to keep an open heart in the presence of suffering, mm-hmm. especially from someone else who regrets me hurt and I close down and walk away. Mm-hmm. I miss the very last. If I lock, if I close my heart, then that's just the mind to cope with things, and the mind alone is not wide enough. Mm-hmm. She says it, it's it's hard to be with suffering sometimes and keep the heart open. Yeah, it takes it takes practice. It takes courage. Um, that's where equanimity comes in, actually. Uh, on the, the first, in the first two weeks, I gave a talk on the, the different Brahma Viharas, and equanimity is the is the way that those other heartfelt qualities are held, so that we don't get caught by them. Uh, and with with the equanimity meditation, the formal equanimity meditation, the, I'll just tell you the phrases and then point to what they're, uh, I think, or say what they're pointing to. The, the phrase is, uh, you, are, you are heir to your karma. Your happiness or unhappiness depends on your actions, not on my wishes for you. Which might sound kind of cool uh, or cold, but actually, it's acknowledging kind of what what Michael was saying before. There is this, this there is this mind body process happening. There is this this unfolding of life happening that we can't control, uh, and we can't necessarily fix. But what we can do is um, is express our caring. Which is a very healing, healing thing to contribute, and I think one of the best ways to develop an open heart in the face of suffering is just the work that you do here when you feel your own suffering. When you're, you know, I said yesterday, some people might be going through intense, uh, opening up to intense uh, spaces of suffering. And it's not that I would wish that on anybody. Oh, I hope you have a lot of suffering today. But actually, it's a very important thing to experience in this process. It's the first noble truth, remember? There is suffering in the world. And the Buddha said, the more you come to understand suffering and its nature, the less you run away from it, the less you're frightened by it. So when you feel your own suffering, if you're willing and have the courage to do it, when you feel it a little at a time and just don't run away from it, but learn to hold it with that, with that caring and that compassion, you're doing the very thing that trains your heart to be around suffering outside of yourself. Because generally the thing that's, that's hardest for us to 
One of the one of the things that makes it hard for us to be with suffering in others is we are frightened by it, and particularly when it comes in ourselves, and we want to run away from it. Oh no! You know. But it's a very good training. And then when you see it in in somebody else, you know you might be seeing suffering that we can't imagine in ourselves. If you're there, well, just put yourself in that situation. Suppose you are going through some real suffering, okay? And somebody, one person comes in and says, you know, oh, oh, Ushi, I'm so, I feel so badly for you. Oh, what can we do to fix it? And then another person comes in and says, oh, it must be really hard. I, I want you to know I really care. I really feel for you. But they're not afraid of it. Who would you rather be around? It's obvious, right? And so, although it might be the thing that you think, you know, you can't do, generally, what we want, what closes our heart is it's unbearable to, to we can't, we can't feel that suffering in another because we want to fix it. We want to we make it better for them. But if you think that the best thing you can do is to somehow find an inner strength, finding the Kuan Yin inside of you or the Buddha inside of you that says, yes, this, this too is part of life. When you, when you are there, even for a little while in that way, you see that it's possible in a way that you didn't even realize was, was a part of you. And it, it takes practice, so not to, not to hurry up or have unrealistic expectations, but to have compassion for that place in you that, that it's hard to, to open up to the suffering. That's a, at least a place to start. Say more. What what's what comes to your mind? So, is there a usefulness in? like if there was something to them. <laughs> well, uh, they are empty phenomena and they're also, you know, it also is a wholesome factor of mind, joy. You know, it's a factor of enlightenment. Uh, and it also it opens you up, so uh, there's a lot of energy that comes from it. Um, now you you were asking uh, this morning, uh, Katie, about joy and concentration. Actually, one thing that crossed my mind afterwards is that joy can directly lead to concentration. It it is that's why it's one of the Brahma Viharas. You know, the four Brahma Viharas are states of mind and heart that when you focus on, you can go into high, um, high degrees of absorption and concentration. So it's, it's classically one of the things that you can, you can direct the attention to to develop a deeper concentration. That's if you're doing, say, you know, 
jhana practice and things like that. Um, and as far as watching them and seeing their impermanence, I would just say when the wholesome states arise, uh, I, I think you can go overboard on just not getting attached to them and so kind of you know waiting for them to go. You know? Oh yeah, here's here's this joy. Okay, let's just watch it come and go. You know? you know. Oh, it's still here. Gee whiz. You know. When's it going to leave? You know? We have enough suffering to deal with. And I think it's, it's really wholesome to use a whole... or really skillful to use a wholesome state when it arises and be very mindful and present with it. That means not trying, not trying to keep it here but also not trying to move it, but to stay, to get very connected with it, and to let your body feel it. You know, if you use it when you use the mental noting, if you use the mental noting, particularly around strong states, it can be very effective. And it's not that oh, once you note it, then it disappears. Actually, the noting can keep you connected to the experience but without grasping it because realizing it's just what's arising now. So say if you're feeling joy, you say to yourself, joy. And you don't have to keep on repeating joy, 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 joy. You know, there won't be any space for you to feel the joy. <laughs> so just name oh, joy and then let it register what joy feels like. It might be unfamiliar territory to you. A lot of people are so much more familiar with suffering that that's kind of home. And when they have experiences of joy or bliss or happiness, you know, it's, you know, it, what is it? What is this that I'm feeling? You know, I don't know. It's good to, to get so familiar with it that it becomes, it becomes part of your home. And, you know, sometimes when people come into interviews, and, uh, some of you know this, and somebody says, you know, I had this experience where, etc., and they, and they really touched something deep. And it wasn't just, it wasn't a story at that point. As they're talking, they're, they're there. They've kind of brought it up again, you know, and you can just feel the energy. And I'll, I'll say, let's, let's just hang out here for a little while. One, I get a little contact high, which is always nice. <laughs> but even more important is for the, for the person to, to really let it register and become familiar with it because it's much more accessible than you think if you give it some attention. Now, that's very different from holding on to it because the, the art is to let it register and then when it goes, let go gracefully. Because any movement like this, and it's painful. But while it's here, yeah, I think it's very skillful. The Buddha talked about increasing wholesome states that have arisen. That's one of the four qualities of right effort. So when there's a wholesome state that's arisen, I found that the best way to increase that wholesome state is to be very present for it instead of being distracted somewhere else. And that increasing is not so much a grasping, it's just a focusing on it and allowing it to, to move, to, to be experienced. Yeah, that's fine. It's just it's just turning your attention to something that's there. If you turn if you turn your attention there so it'll get more and more and more, that's very different than just focusing on what's on what's here. It just so happens when you focus on what's here, you can you, it often brings more aliveness to it. Can do the, I, I, I've been doing this uh, some lately in my sittings. Okay, just try this this on. 
close uh, close your eyes, okay, and um, just feel sad for a moment. Maybe put your face in a sad expression. I won't leave you here. Don't worry. Okay. Let yourself, let your mouth feel sad. Okay, and now just turn your lips so that there's a smile and allow joy to be here. Don't try too hard, but just let yourself really get into a smile, even if it seems weird. And let your attention just feel the quality of what it means to smile. Okay, you can open your eyes. Did you notice any difference between the two? No. Now, you can focus on anything, you know. And if you're, it's one of the, one of the hmm, delicate things in the mind, you know. We want to be both, we want to be mindful, say, when there's sadness. We want to be open to it, not afraid of it but give it space of awareness so we're not confused by it. Okay? But if at some point you keep on on that tape loop, oh, I'm very sad. Oh, I'm very sad. Yeah. Especially when there's the I in there. You know. Oh, I'm a sad person. You know. And if you practice that over time and thinking, oh, that's who I am. I'm a sad person. Yeah, you'll be a sad person. You will be absolutely accurate right uh, so there's there's something that we can do in that as well other people you know, I wish I had this uh, maybe I'll bring it for another reading there's a reading on an optimist uh, yeah. I just reminded myself uh, other people just somehow focus on what's what's right and what's good you know and that's how they, they see the world. Not that you can be you know, so naive that you don't know that there's suffering, but if you've, you'll see what you look for. So when something really wholesome is there, I'd say let yourself appreciate it and honor it. Just notice any movement of the mind that's grasping or trying to make more because that in itself eliminates uh, the openness of joy. There's a couple of things to say. First, how quickly things change, and you can see how ephemeral any emotion is. So how futile it is to try to hold on to any one of them, or how misplaced it is to try to get rid of them when you see how short-lived they are. It's that trying to get rid of that just gives them life. So that's one thing to see. Another is that um, sometimes the energy, sometimes it's just a function of energy. Uh, you might have noticed this. Sometimes you just feel like giggling. Have you ever gotten into that space where just everything strikes you as being funny? You know, you, you do your walking meditation and you feel like doing a little dance, you know, and, or have all kinds of funny things happen, you know. And then uh, in a moment... You can see something that, that touches you, or something poignant, say a, uh, an insect uh, dying or something like that, you know, and boom, you're in a whole different space. Because you're so wide open that things change 
very quickly. And and a lot of it is just energy. You know, if you curl your lips up, you feel one way. Curl them down, you feel another way. But you feel very, very um, sensitive to the world and, and emotions move through you very, very quickly in this space. So it's just interesting. If I've had things release, <clears throat> yeah. But I, I think it's, um, I think it's a combination of the two. You can have major release and understanding, so that you hold things in a different way. Um, but that pattern might come back. It's just once it's held in a different way, you have other other options for it. You know, you might remember when you were a child uh, something that was very terrifying um, that, that had been repressed, say. And then you remember and go through it and have a very profound understanding of what went on there. And there is the sense of of ease that this this secret has been unlocked somehow. That doesn't mean you won't have that response or that fear again. It's just held in a different way. I think, you know, even though we're we we might see through our neuroses at time in the moment that we're clear, we see through them and we're not neurotic. But they're our teachers or our life life issues, and we all have have different ones that that are still patterns to be understood and and not and not taken as self. So you know, just watch the idea that if I really get it, then I won't have to deal with it again because that's that's generally not so. I think there can be radical transformations where you hold things in a whole different way. Though. That's my experience. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Did 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 it sound like I I was saying, don't alleviate suffering? Yeah, it, the way I understood it is that showing your presence 
the line of intervention intervention with suffering I'd say if there's a way to relieve suffering and it's not ta- and it and it's done skillfully and the person is 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 in on the process you know if they're conscious of it whatever um, the, uh, relieving suffering is 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 where it's at it's just when there's um, when you can't relieve the suffering, then all you can do is be present for it. Or when you're taking somebody's suffering away, you're you're talking about a situation where it sounds like there's a physical pain that you can do something about. I'm I'm all for for that, you know, especially if they could if you can if they can have enough consciousness to do the work that, that they can do, you know. That, that's that's even better, but if you are relieving somebody's suffering for them, in the sense of uh, not around just physical pain, but in the sense of rescuing them from what they need to go through, then you know that 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 might bear some more reflection. But a skillful relieving of suffering where you can make a difference sounds good to me. Yeah, I, it's a very, it's a very good question, uh, especially when you're dealing with your own suffering. You know, how much do you go through to to learn to have an open heart and, and courage to be with it, or when do you go the the compassion route and and take care of yourself? And there's there's no right answer, except using the the guideline. What's my intention behind the action? If you're staying with it, if the intention is, you know, suppose you're sitting here and your your body is hurting and there's an urge to move. Okay? I mean, that that's that's essentially the same same question. Only yours was, you know, more extreme. But you go through that all the time, to move or or not to move. That is the question. You know? <laughs> There's there's nothing holy about sitting like a statue and not moving, particularly if your mind is screaming and you are getting more knotted up and aversive to meditation. You don't get any points for that. But if you don't move and you say, I'm just going to see what it's like, you know, you just take one period or just say, okay, I'll take it for the next next few minutes just to see if I can can uh, get in touch with the courage that that uh, that the fear is uh, is blocking. Okay, that can be really skillful. The same way to not move to move, you can be moving out of you know just not wanting to face discomfort and so your fear continually runs you 
Or you can be moving with the most wise compassion. Oh, this is time to take care of myself. And so I'll just move mindfully and make it part of the process. Either way is fine, but, but just to see why you're doing it. And certainly, you know, if you've got something that needs to be taken care of, yeah, your mind might be stronger than your body, but your body will pay for it a long time if you, if you don't treat it right. So not to just think, I'll, I'll tough this out. I know someone who sat a three-month course, uh, uh, someone um, close to me who was getting uh, more and more uh, knotted up and was working with their with their tightness and their fear, and and uh, they were they were working with it over the course of a few weeks, and. Uh, there was this very wonderful monk who's since passed away named Sivali uh, at the uh, meditation center. This is quite a few years ago. And he was, he was, seeing, he was seeing this person go through their, their thing and she was just working with it mindfully and reporting to the teachers, working with it mindfully. And then uh, he said, what's going on? And she, she told him and uh, he said, uh, I think you should have it checked out. Your stomach keeps on bothering you. And it turned out she was just pre-ulcerous. It was just before having an ulcer. And then she took some Tagamet or whatever it was. And then, oh, the rest of her retreat was great after that. Relates to the dead. Uh huh. Mm. And I've been doing a lot of talking about when I've been here, but it's been bringing up the dead that are taken care of over the past 20 years, which the medical practices have changed tremendously. Yeah, it, well, it's, I, I, the medical practices have changed tremendously. Uh-huh. So I was responsible for decisions for these three people. Mm. Tomorrow at three o'clock. It's, it's true that traditionally uh, metta is uh, it's suggested to use a live person for metta. Um, supposedly, the reason is that it's it's uh, harder to go into jhana with somebody who's dead. It is it's written in in some scriptures. Um, I don't know about that. I, I do know that I've done metta with people who are dead and it works for me that's 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 the main thing that i that i uh, uh, use as a guideline um, so as far as doing metta for uh, for the dead is the is the intention about developing metta for yourself or in in making their experience wherever they are better Okay, 
So as first as far as their well-being, you know, in my mind, we are on a journey. We're on our spiritual journey and it doesn't end with this, this form. And so, you know, when I've sent metta, say, for my father, who's somebody I, I, love, I love dearly, uh, wherever he is on his journey, you know, I'm, I'm wishing him well. And I don't know what effect it is on him, but it surely can't hurt, and it opens up my heart. And I, I, I kind of believe that it's more than just time and space that we're talking about. Um, but the one piece that it seems uh, important for your own self and working with your own mistakes, as you put it, is it sounds like you were doing the best you could given the information that was available at that time. Is that not so? And that, that's what it would come down to as far as forgiving yourself. Just looking at your intention behind the actions and um, if it was not to cause suffering or even if you did things that maybe now you might do a bit differently because there was fear and aversion in your, in your heart or your mind, just to, to see you were doing the best you could at that time. And with that, there's a possibility of forgiveness. And you learned. You know, that was the information that you had at the time, both medically and also spiritually in your growth. <laughs> It doesn't sound like you were doing something maliciously, right? So, you know, even Angulimala, who uh, Mary talked about, who killed 999 people, became fully enlightened afterwards. It's never too late, you know. <laughs> and I doubt if you were on that that kind of a uh, an order. So. You've got, to, you've got to cut yourself a little bit of slack here and just see why, what, what made me do what I, do, what I did. And the Buddha talks, actually, it's just a little piece about guilt, you know, which is something that I, I've looked at a fair amount since it was a big part of my uh, lineage. And in guilt, there's no way out of guilt if you keep on dwelling on what you're on the, on the mistakes that you did and beat yourself up for it. Because then you just see, yeah, I'm a rotten person and I deserve this punishment. And you keep on dwelling on it. Whereas the Buddha talked instead about um, wise reflection instead, instead or wise remorse, where you see that you might have done something a bit unskillful or unskillful Instead of dwelling on it and being, and and uh, getting down on yourself, seeing what did I learn from this? What did I learn from it that I can now commit to doing a new way? So it's it's bringing it into the present and using the past lessons to wake up all the more. And the Buddha, he's got this great discourse to his uh, his son Rahula. Which basically says, sometimes you'll notice an action as you're starting, as it arises in the consciousness to do. Sometimes you might not notice it until you're in the middle of the action. Sometimes you might not notice or realize it until after the act is over. And he says, anywhere along that line, whenever you notice, whenever you realize, see, is this leading to suffering or is this leading to happiness or peace? You know, if it's before the action then and it's leading to suffering, practice some restraint. You'll feel better in the long run. If it's in the middle and it's an unskillful action, just stop it. Or if it's skillful, continue it. After the action, you can't undo it but start the practice right there and see what you've learned from it so you can uh, do it differently in the future and practice forgiveness and compassion for that. It's a process. I don't know when you're 
when those thoughts will end. There's no, there's no timetable on it, but I will say the more you can understand why you did what you did and bring compassion to that, the probably the sooner they'll be processed. And pretty much the more you beat yourself up, they'll probably be hanging around for a while. Okay, it's uh, it's just about it's a little after eight, so well, this is good. <laughs> yeah, I had fun. It's been I just want to say it's been really uh, it's been fun for me practicing with you today. <laughs> yeah. Just it's a very it's a very beautiful space in the hall. You know that uh, that woman who came in here by accident this morning. You know. <laughs> I think we blew her minds. <laughs> it's 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 very beautiful in here. So um, I hope you can feel the wholesomeness of your contribution to to this community. Okay, so we'll do a bit of a walking and then come back for a sitting. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.